Hello there. How's it going? Welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Ed Draper, sports broadcaster in the UK here with you. Thank you for hitting on the button. Thank you to the sponsors as ever. Bang & Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Check out the Bang & Olufsen Cheltenham website. Get contact details for Jason Briggs and his fine team who can point you in the right direction, whether it's Bang & Olufsen Equipment or a more bespoke solution through that sister company, Serene AV, where they can source you whatever equipment suits your vision, your budget. Do get in touch with them. Some cool videos as well on BO underscore Cheltenham on Instagram, Bang Olufsen underscore Cheltenham on, on Instagram, and on Twitter as well, I believe, and even the mighty Facebook. Somewhat contentious Facebook, as they all are, aren't they, these social media platforms? But anyway, thank you for being here. Thank you to Cytoplan, food-based supplement company that we've been uh, taking or working with for the past 20 years as a family, the Drapers. My father has been a consultant for them, Dr. Mark Draper, who is a micronutritionist specialist as well as a general practitioner, doctor, former anaesthetist as well, very much intrigued by trace elements in particular, like selenium and zinc, which he says the soil samples suggest are depleting in the UK at least. And this is something very unique and, and, and bespoke to wherever you are in the world and whatever state you're in, if you're in America, it varies to such a huge country, whatever the quality of your soil is. And it depends where your produce is coming from, doesn't it, as well? It may not be grown locally, another consideration. But he's certainly a big advocate for things like selenium and zinc, which are all constituents found in the immune complete range at Cytoplan, which I take. And if you look at, at the website, you can see a whole raft of, of supplements, whatever you're looking to enhance in your health at cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk. And if you head there and you find something you'd like, the discount code with the podcast is Draper10R, which is my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Right on today's podcast, really appreciate the candour and time of Tris Dixon, former editor of Boxing News magazine in the UK, longtime boxing author as well, CrossFit practitioner, inspiring man in his 40s, but a real, uh, I guess, labour of conscience for him and a deep dive into the realities of head trauma, which are a consideration now across all sports, but particularly in the world of, of boxing and combat sports as well, looking at the long-term consequences of health of, of cognitive function of brain health of uh, being hit in the head and we're looking at it in soccer football here in the uk american football rugby and it's something to bear in mind and it's laid bare in boxing when he looks back at all the champions looks at the history the research over the past hundred years or so and i think it's something that he felt was an ode to the sport after making a living as a journalist and an author around the sport that he had to let it clear what fighters are risking and the probabilities involved of, of damage. So I really appreciate uh, Tris Dixon being here. The book is Damage, The Untold Story of Brain Trauma Brain Trauma in Boxing. Check that out. But first, listen to the podcast with Tris and he uh, elucidates some of the key points here. Thank you, guys. Here we are, the wonderful. Tris Dixon, welcome back to the podcast. How are you feeling? How are you doing? The, the book is a week away as we speak. Yeah, I'd be lying if if I said I wasn't uh, a slightly anxious or apprehensive about it. But then, um, you know, it's got some positive reviews already so far and from people like Thomas Hauser and Donald McRae. So, um, so even if a lot of people think it sucks, then the fact that Thomas and Don McRae think that it's a good, worthy book, then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of content with that. Yeah, the timing's really coincidental, actually, from my end it's because I've actually interviewed Don McRae this week we've been meaning to catch up for a long time and we talk about the book Damage 
with him and obviously I know he's, he's written a tribute for it and he I guess w- w- was was knowledgeable about this I suppose we all had a sense of the damage that that head trauma causes but the way that you've done it mixing quantitative analysis with qualitative stories about different boxes the state they're in was really powerful beginning with Harold Graham in a psychiatry facility in the North London and I just it's interesting that balance of it, it's so fulsome isn't it I suppose that is is your kind of not alleviation of the guilt that we all feel sometimes we're covering the sport, but it's 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 pretty comprehensive as you can get looking at it from all different angles. Yeah, I mean, it was a job to balance uh, humanity with science. Uh, and I think that was probably the hardest part is when you look through reams and reams of medical papers is to make it as accessible as possible to normal individuals like you and I who, who don't have mm. medical backgrounds. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about the guilt and, and that sort of stuff. And, and there is a guilt attached to following and watching boxing. For me, uh, I'm sure some people don't feel that, particularly if they're, if they're slightly younger and maybe haven't seen some of the older guys crash off the back of a treadmill in life after boxing. But, mm. um, but yeah, I mean, it was one of those things, you know, I, I wanted to do something that was lasting for boxing that should, in theory, help it in the future. You know, so many people say that they love the sport and say that they love the fighters well like do they actually you know when when these people set up these gofundmes for fallen fighters and all the rest of it like they set them up and then within a week within a week or so of pushing them they sort of come and gone Mm. and the whole thing for me is i wanted to dedicate a part of my career and my legacy to try to make things better for fighters in the future so, you know, a big four-year chunk of my career has now been spent on damage and with the, with the very best intentions that it makes the sport safer for the fighters so that they're less likely to suffer with chronic injuries as opposed to acute injuries. I think we're all aware of the, the, the damage that fighters or, or the risk that fighters put in uh, on fight night, which is the acute injuries. It's the chronic injuries, which is obviously punch-drunk syndrome, which is now known yeah. as CTE. Uh, which happens down the line that people aren't so aware of and, and they're, they're, they're not aware of um, what might happen to them. Even if they've got out of the sport unscathed, that's not saying that they're going to remain unscathed for the future. And do you think the goal is to change the, the nature of training then? Because I know this is a, a conversation in football at the moment, soccer for people in the States and, and Australia, where ex-pros are going down with what they call senile dementia very in disproportionate numbers and they're saying that in the sort of 60s and 70s they'd hang big balls from gym ceilings and, and head them repetitively for for an hour and we're looking at the, the, the fragility of the brain overall across sports and, and the lasting damage of the trauma is it about changing the sport to make it more safe or is it just illuminating and informing people because i've had this conversation in a number of areas about risk free will uh, choice because it, it kind of comes to me that if people have the information then we shouldn't mollycoddle and, and prevent them doing different things if it's riding a motorbike if it's playing rugby football but I suppose the key is what you're saying in here is that boxing unequivocally is is a dangerous sport and and the majority and you go through the, the legends of the history and the detail of, of their stories the majority of boxers have suffered undue effects cognitively as, as they've got older yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my stance is similar to yours in that respect. Ed. I think education plays a, a big part, and, and I don't mean that to sound boring, but, like, some of these guys aren't aware of what's what what could happen to them and what has happened to them and what is happening to them. 
which is a scary process, particularly when you speak to a guy who's maybe around 50 years old, is mm. symptomatic and he's not sure what's going on and why his life's turning out the way it's going. Um, so the education for the fighters and families, which will obviously ultimately have to come from um, governing bodies, so like the Board of Control and through, the, through, the, through all the commissions and so forth, so that they can educate trainers, managers, promoters and fighters about these long-term uh, risks. And when you talk about the training, I just think, you know, the culture is going to have to change and boxing has the opportunity now to get in front of the curve with this. When you look at, you just cited some of the things that other sports are doing, mm. you know, what what's boxing doing about it? It's not doing a great deal um, about these things. You know, these loopholes still exist. And, uh, you know, the, the easy reference is the Muhammad Ali one where, um, you know, he was banned from fighting in the USA. So he snuck in and uh, threw a boxing loophole and went and fought in but the Bahamas. Mm. And people saying he was clearly already damaged. Like this stuff happens very, very regularly in boxing. Even today, if someone fails a medical somewhere, they'll go and get licensed elsewhere. I think that's a key part of what needs to change moving forwards. And I think, you know, when you look at sparring, you know, mm. some guys, you know, you see will spar 100, 150 rounds for a fight and then they'll fight again a couple of months later and they'll do the same again. Like, is that absolutely necessary to go life and death for 150 rounds before a fight and then uh, a short time after finishing a fight, carrying on and doing it again. Um, mm. I think, you know, having spoken to the, the number of fights I've spoken to, particularly someone like a Mickey Ward who thinks 90% of his damage was done in sparring. Yeah. You know, and, and he would, with hindsight, have reduced the amount he sparred. Um, I think there are le lessons to be learned and I think it's down to... It's down to the fighters, the trainers, the managers and families to educate themselves so that they can see signs of when they need to um, put the accelerator down in training, but also more importantly, when they need to ease off, certainly with regards to, to full contact. We do see some places, like look at the Ingle Gym in Sheffield, where some of the most uh, physical yeah. sparring I've seen has been their body sparring, where they do a massive amount of body sparring, where they, where they mm -hmm. do not do so much to the head for good reason there's a there's a quote from brendan ingle on the walls of the gym saying something about boxing being bad for your brain and yeah it's, it's relatively self-explanatory but you know i think that's that's also uh, a sort of um it's a common misconception where boxing's bad for your brain because people say oh yeah you know I, i've been told this numerous times over the years oh yeah i know hitting getting hit in the head's not good for you mm. and then you can say yes but in what way is it not good for you and people won't know what the answer is because yeah. they might just think about, oh, you know, I might get stretched out of the ring on fight night. They won't think of the links to Alzheimer's, to Parkinson's, to dementia, to ALS. And they won't think of CTE and, and, and the, the, how, how repetitive blows to the head cause a buildup of tau protein in the brain, which uh, ultimately the, those toxic cells start killing brain cells and making the brain shrink so that cognitive function is greatly reduced as an injury. And, and, crucially in boxing uh you know and in terms of the case studies we've seen a year you know year after year is how this repetitive trauma also not only affects cognitive function but behavioral patterns as well mm. and for the longest time i've said depression has been um an epidemic in boxing well you know when you when you realize that actually you know it's been proven that it's been scientifically proven that head trauma can or, or does have links to depression and these studies have been done with the NFL and so forth, then you think, well, 
maybe this is one of the reasons why boxing's got a, a problem with depression. Yeah. Yeah, the, the film it's the film concussion, wasn't it, with Will Smith playing the the African doctor and who exposed the NFL's um you know lack of, of of effort looking into the psychological trauma, the the conditions, the suicides, the, everything that came from from head trauma in that sport. As well, well, the NFL didn't. The NFL didn't only uh, sort of ignore it. They they were trying to produce counter science to say actually no, it's safe for you. Yeah. So they went actually on the front foot against these sort of who were seen to be renegade scientists, but who now are on are on very much on the right side of history. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's strange, like say with boxing, there is a machismo there which sort of acknowledges it, but it's almost, well, it won't happen to me kind of thing. But I suppose what you draw attention to there, which I found fascinating was, and Don McRae references this in the conversation I had with him, was the Muhammad Ali, knee Cassius Clay, his degeneration into Parkinson's and how the science and the medical reports that you looked at you know indisputably linked that to the head trauma that he suffered and I've, I've got it written down here on my pen on my hand from last night I think it was 8,877 blows are estimated that he took and you said boxing at the age of 12 onwards and he got increasing amount of blows because of his boxing style change as he slowed down and went into his late 30s in particular and had that that layoff because of the his stance over Vietnam and things but it, it struck me as the, he linked that to Parkinson's. You, Lou Gehrig is another sort of cognitive function well, disease. On, yeah, I mean, you, uh, let me just cut you off about Ali. I mean, those those eight thousand odd punches were only in his last five or six fights. The was two it? Were, the two with Leon Spinks, the fight with Andy Shavers, the fight with Larry Holmes, and the fight oh, man. with Trevor Burbick. Wow. So that was, you know, he'd already been fighting for thirty years by that point. Wow, he, uh, that's and, unbelievable. And, and then you're you're factoring in obviously the long training camps that he endured to try and get in shape for those guys as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the ALS stuff and you know what 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 is commonly known elsewhere as is Luke Lou Gehrig's uh, disease. I think that was something that I found myself really without you know just through having some boxing knowledge where I thought wow, there's quite a few fighters that have suffered with this. And obviously I've put the pieces together and, and then realised that not only did Ezra Charles have it, but Scott Ledoux had it, Matthew Saad Mohammed had it. Had it. And yeah. there was there was several guys I was thinking, well, this is an unusual pattern. And then obviously you go across to football and you see, yeah, and I mean American football, you see that, uh, you know, there's there's been stuff, there's been research done on this, links to from head trauma to ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, geez, you know, we've, we, we're getting that too. And you connected it with Gehrig himself. You looked at the case studies involving his experiences as a baseball player. And actually he had significant head trauma, didn't he? Well, there was a great, there was a great documentary by HBO. I think it was one of their real sports shows and they explored Lou Gehrig's history. And this was a guy who, a baseball, a baseball icon mm. who was known as the iron horse for his durability He And he was, he was known for what they called the streak. And he was in something like in the region of 2000 consecutive games. Yeah. And they're thinking, wow, this guy's Mr. Durable. And then all of a sudden he had a very quick deterioration and died. And they were like, well, where's this deterioration come from? Well, in researching uh, about Lou Gehrig, the HBO team found at least there were at least six huge concussions where he'd been flat out on the turf, you know, from being wow. bombs or collisions or whatever. And obviously part of this streak meant that, you know, he, he'd just gone back and, and carried on as before. So he hadn't had time to rest, recuperate. And obviously some of those concussions might have been very close to each other as well. 
so you know he wouldn't have he wouldn't yeah. have healed or repaired so yeah i mean it's it's frightening but obviously head trauma is is something that um you know people are people are starting to understand a little bit more about it and obviously but back then when in the in the 20s and 30s when lou gehrig was at his at the height of his height of his powers people people had no idea mm. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal, actually, that, where you can trace it back to. And I was speaking to my wife anecdotally this morning about how when I was playing a little bit of semi-professional football, late teens, early 20s, I, I became not I'm not a tall man per se on the average, but I'm, I'm six feet. So I'm tall for football standards. And I ended up heading the ball a lot because my centre of gravity changed. I'd been a bit more of a dribbler, but it had to change. And I said, I'm actually one of the downsides of my job, I thought, was that I've been working weekends, not being able to play 11 aside football. But actually, possibly was it was a positive because I've avoided all that, that head trauma that maybe I would have gotten. To be fair, I didn't know. I didn't. I knew as a young man that boxing potentially or MMA or whatever, taking blows to the head directly, like that would be a problem. But I wasn't aware of, of the concerns around football. And I suppose what we've seen with football, and I mean soccer, when I talk about this, just to clarify, is that there is a, a more sanitised version of the game. People lament it to a certain extent, myself included, that maybe it's not as contact based as it was. But maybe that's a positive when you look back to, you know, old grainy tape from the 1950s where goalkeepers would get elbowed and barged into the net. And, and it's what you're saying about baseball, that baseball back in those days was actually a very aggressive contact sport at times when you're charging to the base and someone's the field is trying to block you or whatever. It's a, a different a different thing than we see now. But boxing fundamentally is still about hitting someone in the stomach, in, a, in the face. And the face in particular is is a big issue that you expose here. And as you say, it's it's not those those you do a Harold Graham, you talk about the, the knockout loss to Julian Jackson, but I think the underlying message was it's the cumulative effect. And often it's the tough guys who stay on their feet. You have the wards like Mickey Ward, and as you say there, it's probably inspiring, not the Artero Gatti trilogy that maybe we think about, but it was it was that cumulative effect. That's something that maybe boxers don't think about. It's not the punches that that knock them out necessarily that are the issue. Yeah, I think that is one of the common misconceptions. It is it, it, volume over time. And I think one of the things you said there, which um, was right to a point, but you said, you know, it was the sluggers. I think that was a, that's a real misconception. You know, when you think of the guys that have suffered down the line yeah, and you look at, you know, your Wilfred Benitez, who was called the radar because no one could hit him. Mm. You have Willie Pep, one of the greatest defensive wizards of all time, who had Alzheimer's at the end. Uh, you obviously had Muhammad Ali, who I know was obviously a flighty sort of heavyweight in his first incarnation. Obviously, he sort of slugged out a lot more in the second version of his, his second part of his career. But some of the greatest defensive wizards of all time had it. And obviously, we talk about Harold Graham, obviously, who, who I spoke to in the book. Yeah. Uh, in the psychi psychiatric unit in, in London. So it's not just it's not just the guys who come forward and slug, you know, if you get hit in the head too many times, regardless of your style, it's just not, it's not, it's not good for you. What should people do about sparring? Cause I find it informative to, to hear from case studies or, or people's stories from other sports. And I understand that Muay Thai is, it's a pretty brutal sport, but they just touch tap in sparring. I know Max Holloway in the UFC is, is a really talented guy, but has revealed it before his last fight where he got record stats of punches landed. He hadn't sparred contact before that. And the argument would be that these guys have reached an elite level where they know how to do it. And there's a sort of philosophy that maybe people need to be tested in the gym before they get in the, the arena, the, the ring or the cage in mixed martial arts. What's your, what's your thought? So on that, or should it just be that, that it's, that it's move and, and touch for all sparring at all levels? I mean, so Ed, I'm not a particularly woke guy in that respect. Like I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a guy who thinks, right, pillows on, you know, giant <laughs> motorcycle helmets and all the rest of it. 
hey, I'm I'm still a huge boxing advocate, still a huge boxing fan. Yeah. Um, and and I'm an old school guy, but obviously I'm privy to knowledge now that I didn't have when I was a young boxer or a young fight fan. Um, when I was all for sort of 15 round wars and I would love a, you know, I was at Mickey Ward, Arturo Gatti one and two, but one was 19 years ago this week. Mm. And, and I loved them, but I would watch it through a different lens now. Um, that's for sure. But um, obviously I'd still enjoy it. But in terms of sparring, I think it's it's just a, it would be about monitoring and seeing how much you do. And obviously, so there's there's two things. I mean, so say I would say this would be realistic. So say you have a, a say a fighter has a, a big ten or twelve round fight coming up. Yeah, I would say you can maybe put. I would say I would recommend. And this is this isn't me being a doctor. This is me just with you know as as a layperson with 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 the stuff I've learned over the years. I would say maybe do. 50 rounds in total, maybe make them 30 to the body and 10, uh, 10 where they're sort of lightly competitive and maybe 10 where you're going as hard as you would go in sparring. Yeah. And, and break it and break it up like that. And, and obviously I wouldn't do that for a four rounder or a six round or anything like that, but for a big fight. And I think that there's, you know, people just need to be aware of things also like second impact syndrome, which I, I talk about in the book where, you know, these guys in football, for example, or soccer, when you have the concussion substitutions, they're coming off because they're concussed. When you're concussed, that means you've got a brain injury. So that's inhibiting how you function. Yeah. So they're coming off for that reason. Well, if you've had a hard spar and you feel like you've got a concussion, then obviously the best thing to do is not spar again until you're medically cleared to spar. Too many people in boxing would just go back in the gym the next day. And too many people in boxing, and we saw this with, a very famous case with Nick Blackwell in recent years where yeah. he said he was badly hurt and shaken and sparring by George Groves. Like the week before he fought Chris Eubank Jr. And obviously he wound up in a coma after the Eubank Jr. fight. Yeah. And then things went even worse when he sparred again, obviously down the line and second impact syndrome. The best way it was explained to me is where you have your first, you have a first sort of almighty crack and you stand up to it. Your brain stands up to it. And it's like an earthquake going off in your brain. Mm. And basically what happens then is you take a lighter shot and it's like the aftershocks coming through, but it's the, it's those ones that do the massive damage and destroys all the buildings and all the foundations. Yeah. So you might think that you're okay having stood up to a massive shot, but if you actually, if you sustained a brain injury and that's another thing, changing terminologies because it, it used to be a head injury, but if you, if you sustained a brain injury, then you're at risk of suffering a more severe one. And so the best thing is to, to not put yourself in harm's way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating that. And just the, the reality of, of the fragility of the, the human skull and brain and how susceptible we are to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the, the ble which are bleeds, aren't they? They're micro bleeds when you get a blow and we don't have to be someone who's particularly susceptible to get that. That is normal for humans. They're not designed to take repetitive blows to the head. No, sure. But also, you know, it's when you when you look at CTE, for me, you know, the thing that's not talked about enough. And I think, you know, if you were to talk to some of the more powerful people in boxing today and you were to ask them, do you know what tau protein is? Mm. And I wonder how many of them would actually say, yeah, I know what tau protein is. That's the pro that's the toxic protein that forms in the brain when you've taken a serious amount of volume of shots to the head. Yeah. Now, how many people would actually understand what that is and what it does 
and how it works. And for me, that's what terrifies me. And I, I won't name people by name, but just because I'd be guessing here, but I, imagine if you went up to some of the top um, A-list fighters or promoters and you said, oh, what's Tau Protein? I'd be stunned if any of them knew what it was. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, and I think it's, it, it's trying to figure out the way that you, you approach it in terms of being practical, because obviously each punch isn't the same as the other. So how do you quantify it? Should people take count of how many shots they've received in their career in sparring and, and fighting cumulatively? Should there be more analysis of each fighter to know where they're almost like miles on the clock? Is it, is it something you could equate to that? Well, and the hard thing that we're getting into this territory now, Ed, is, is policing it. Mm. you know like you know you can hand out these guidelines as much as you see fit and say don't overdo it you know what's the you know there's no point going life and death in the gym and all the rest of it you need to save it for for when you're out there but even if the board were to hand down these guidelines what's to stop these guys going into rogue gyms like a nick blackwell where he went and sparred when he was equivalently equivalently told not to box again yeah and 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 just do, doing what they want anyway and, and this is the this is the thing that, you know, really sort of disenfranchises me from boxing is the lack of cohesiveness and organisation allows all these loopholes to, to open up. And these guys put themselves at real risk when they shouldn't be allowed to. You've got a chapter with Freddie Roach, which is powerful in there because he's a man that suffers obviously from a neurodegenerative disease that is connected to boxing. And he is acutely aware. And you talk about our conflict or we've talked about our conflict as reporters covering boxing because we're being paid to be there where people are knocking nine bells out of each other. I talked to Don McRae about the wonder and the, the shock at, at being ringside and commentating on Regis Progray versus Josh Taylor because it was two titans going at it, unrelenting. And I just wondered, you know, the pleasure we were getting from it, being paid to be there financially was was conflicting for me. But Roach is very, it's a powerful piece, isn't it? You know, I wondered how much boils down to the trainers. You've referenced Brendan Ingle there, how much responsibility is upon them to manage the fighter? Because as we all know, the fighting instinct is not to take a backward step yourself. It's not to self-regulate. You need someone to, to tell you enough is enough. Yeah, and I also think part of this comes from, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a, a little sideways step here, Ed, and it's partly to do with how slow boxing is on the uptake with science and scientific methods, whether it's training or anything else. The fact that this research is still relatively new in boxing and, and still not really, really being talked about, yeah. It makes you wonder, you know, given that barbell was a dirty word in boxing until the 1990s, <laughs> it, it makes you wonder, you know, are these old school guys just ever going to want to be interested in, in not, I'm not going to be manipulative here and say, oh, in keeping their fighters safe, but are they going to be interested in, in changing their ways and changing their methods to try and make things better for the fighters down the line? Because ultimately that's what it comes down to. A lot, There's a lot of old school voices a lot of old school coaches out there that won't understand about cte and power protein and and mm. and the and the chronic dangers of boxing and if they're finding it hard to implement strength and conditioning stuff when you know it, it, here in 2021 what what are the chances of them changing their their old-fashioned training and sparring methods it's, it's hard to see that said obviously freddie in the chapter does say you know he's cut his guys sparring down from three times a week to two and all the rest of it but you know we can see you know via you know we can see via social media that sometimes still people really go at it in the wild card uh, yeah you know one of those places where you know it's a rite of passage to survive some sparring sessions in there yeah um, it is what it is you know I, I again it, it sort of boils down to 
knowledge, education, but also policing in it. And that's going to be one of the hard things moving forward. Yeah, people have different agendas inspiring. There's an ego version to it. There's a kind of setting a precedent to it. I mean, Johnny Nelson, you mentioned Brendan was very clever to me. He said that Brendan would always say to him to not show your best inspiring because you may fight this opponent in the ring and you want to leave something unknown. So don't don't try and sort of assert your, your best work in, in a sense. And I was actually watching David Hay against Deontay Wilder, I think, at the sparring session from 2013 the other day, and they were really going hammer and tongue and, and clearly at that stage Wilder was looking to make an impression on a, a former world champion and, and there's talks of the subplot to Joshua Fury is this sparring session I believe in 2010 that they shared so there's there's lots of com complications to, to the sport in, in terms of taking it easy and sparring and maybe it's having sort of contracted sparring partners someone is, is more of a professional thing there's less sort of conflict between rivals and but then it's, it's a very it's a very difficult sport to police but what you're talking about and, and what I've found in myself is a remarkable duality where in the book you talk about I think it was Dr Martland back a hundred years ago or so was was researching this about punch drunk syndrome at the time and was articulating the issues and, and the, the ubiquitousness of, of, of damage for boxers. And yet it hasn't been fully embraced. It's almost like we can't embrace it or people in boxing can't embrace it because it would it would invalidate what they're doing in a way. You wouldn't be able to consciously get in the ring if you accepted it, although subconsciously everyone seems to know it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think, but I think one of the big differences, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book so much, is... The boxing has been faced with this stigma of punch drunk syndrome where basically um, it's, it's, it's a negative connotation. It's been used as a derogatory term in, cult, in pop culture for decades. Mm. And, you know, if you're punchy in inverted commas or you're, or you're punch drunk, it's an insult. And we've heard that recently. I mean, O'Hara Davis used it to slag Ashley Theophane a couple of years ago and Donald Trump did it. And I mentioned this in the book, Donald Trump did it to Robert De Niro and got front page headlines around the world by calling Robert De Niro punchy. Mm. And, um, you know, it's that sort of language that needs to stop. And, you know, our, our old fighters deserve better than for people to shrug their shoulders at them and say, oh, they're punchy. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, when you look at Martin and, and what's happened now, certainly this is why I think boxing hasn't addressed it because it's uncomfortable because people are, um, are sorry for the toll that boxing has taken on so many people. But one of the things we need to do is, is address it or else the scrap heap's just going to keep growing and growing and growing. And we want to help these yeah. guys in life after boxing. You know, so many of these guys retire at 30 or 35. They, they should have another 50 years of productivity in them yeah. and of, of happy lives with kids and grandkids and so forth. And um, there's no reason why they can't. It's just, you know, people need to look out for themselves and people need to look out for the fighters as well and I th so I think that's why not, not loads has been done because it's become a taboo subject you know mm. and you know I, I don't know that the NFL suffers from this you know when people say oh you know Mike Webster suffered with CTE and Junior Sales had suffered had CTE I think people are sort of there's sympathy that they've they've sustained head injuries and stuff over the years yeah but there's not the same stigma like oh they were punchy you know and sort of shrug your shoulders and move on and you know it's, it's almost like a damning term yeah, I don't think there's there's that kind of and and the same when you look at the the soccer leg, legends who who are now being diagnosed with dementia, which I'm sure is just a another way of saying CTE. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that these soccer legends aren't you know being ridiculed the same way the fighters are for being punchy, and I, and I think it's it's time that that really needs to stop, and that's one of the things I really try to tackle in the book.
Mm. Yeah, the, the famous brothers, Jack Charlton and Bobby Charlton, there's a lot of an outpouring of sympathy about them. There's a documentary about Jack Charlton. And since that came out, his brother Bobby has been diagnosed with, with, with dementia as well. So I think there has been a public outpouring around that. And there's, there's a lot more sort of, I guess, because maybe football's a national game in the UK, there's a sort of a rancor about that and a, and a sense of injustice on the on the part of the players. It's interesting because we've talked about well-being, you're big into CrossFit. And, and when you weigh up life and what you want out of it, I suppose longevity is a plus, but it's well-being. And I suppose on both counts, what you outline in the book is that the, the well-being is severely diminished. You mentioned the age of 50, but I was looking at a list of you had a list of, um, of famous names, including Ezard Charles, including Muhammad Ali, including Joe Frazier. And I think Ingemar Johansson was the only one that made it past 75, wasn't he? So at both levels, quality and quantity of, of years of life, you well, can see I mean, it's impacted. So, yeah, I mean, whether or not Ingo, Ingo made it past 75, I'm not sure, but his, his, um, his life was greatly reduced and restricted with uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah. I remember he was, I was actually in Canastota when he was due to be inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame back in, I think, 2001, and he couldn't travel there because he was in such poor health. So mm. um, the, all, all those guys in that list suffered in some way, shape or form, whether they made it into slightly older age or not, uh, they all suffered. Yeah, it's... It's brutal, isn't it? And what our conflict stems from as well is, and you've actually boxed yourself, so I think you've earned your stripes to a certain extent to cover it and to be paid to do it in a way that I think I don't necessarily feel that sometimes I feel a bit of a guilt attached to that, not having had the, the cojones to get in there myself. And I think what's, but what is, is complex is because we know the stories of where a lot of boxers came from. It's not you know, it's generally not people with wonderful educational opportunities, wonderful family lives, wonderful fathers. It's it, typically for mailboxes in particular. It's a, it's a chance to find discipline, to find mentors, to find a direction in life. And and often those people don't maybe did they need to become professionals? They need to take that extra step and get hit in the head a lot. That's the the question, isn't it? Is where you differentiate the, the positives of boxing from from the negatives. And at what point you stop? And and, and if you have millions of dollars in the, the bank, like Floyd Mayweather's, like like Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, at what point? Is, is it a high-risk strategy to continue fighting? Yeah, I mean, that you know, when you look at the socioeconomics of boxing, that's, for me, one of the things that I found most, most interesting in the research of the book is when you look at, so, so boxers who have come off the rails, whether they've uh, done some crazy stuff or whether they've uh, committed suicide or whether they've committed murders or whatever, you have to wonder when you look at the broad spectrum of things because obviously we've seen this with the nfl mm. and these guys who have murdered people and, and committed suicide and then or murdered people and then committed suicide and different things like this when you look back through boxing history and you look at the likes of billy papka and kid mccoy and del fontaine who sort of all had bad demises for one one reason or another yeah and, and obviously there's there's far more modern instances of this you know with guys who spent long stints in prison and, and stuff you have to wonder um people and people now sort of tag me in this they say oh is this cte and and is it is it due to brain trauma and this is one of the things that really some of the scientists are trying to work out is how much of this behavior is down to uh, brain trauma but also how much of it is down to guys coming from absolutely nothing and extreme poverty or from uh or from extreme trauma non-brain related in their past and in their in their backstories like were they going to be were these people born with criminal minds or were they born into a culture where they were sort of almost bred to be criminals from the start yeah uh, and and 
and have they always had something to prove and are there different things in play so it's a really hard part for the scientists to try and navigate you know when they when they deal with these fighters whose whose personalities have, have changed you know a, a more recent example would be someone like a Jermaine Taylor who was a an Olympic sort of golden child mm. um you know who was who was a key member of the U.S. U.S. national team yeah and then all of a sudden his behavior has sort of gone skew with and you think, well, hang on, is that due to boxing or, or do we need to go back further in time and, and check out his childhood? And, you know, was he always destined to, to come off the come off the rails? Yeah, fundamentally, they, they're often, you know, hurt people that, that then find a career in, in hurting other people. But in a sense, boxing is is something that, that regulates those those errant sort of desires, isn't it? It creates discipline. There's rules, there's, there's regulations, there's respect you have to have for your trainers. So there's a sense there. But it's interesting, as you say, though, with American football, we don't assume they're just aggressive people because there's an incredible amount of aggression required, particularly for linebackers, people that just plough into each other to, to play that sport. We don't immediately think that's something organic to those players. We, we are now looking at that and saying, well, was that because of the trauma that, that, that affected them, that changed their personalities? And in your book, I suppose it's the case studies where people close to these fighters say, no, 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 they changed. And you talked about Joe Lewis, didn't you? Being a keen golfer and then became wrapped in a sort of haze of, of paranoia, according to his wife. And that was a powerful story, too. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you did touch upon it at the start of that bit there Ed, where you talk about like the ethics of boxing. And, you know, that's something where you know, when I do interviews for the book, I'm not really keen to go down that route because I'm a boxing guy and I'm, I'm, I'm a pro boxing guy. The thing is with, when it comes to the ethical side of boxing, I, I will, I will, I will fight boxing's corner in the sense that I do stand by the phrase that boxing has saved more souls than it's taken. Yeah. And you know, I know people in my small circle, in my local, whether it's in my local club or some of the, top guys I've ever interviewed in the sport. You know, I, these guys, some of them would have been no hopers. Some of them would have been career criminals. Some of them would have been, you know, wouldn't have found, found any kind of purpose, discipline or routine in life. And yet it's made, it's made some of the best people I've ever met in my life as well. So, mm. and boxing has done that. So, you know, I think you have that, that really strong argument that obviously boxing does so much for communities. It does so much for individuals. And just from my own story, like I had a period in my life where I was flying badly off the rails and mm. boxing really helped steer me and give me, give me a steer and it gave me self-discipline and gave me self-respect. Um, and it gave me things that I still, still have and utilise in my life today. And there's an angst and energy about being a young man in particular, because it's hard for me to empathise with young women. I don't know the experience, but being a young man, being around young men, there are stages in your life where there is an energy that, that needs directing. And in modern society, sitting in front of a computer screen, sitting, writing an essay, it, it doesn't fulfil that, does it? Whereas sports like boxing are channels for that aggression that historically would have been put into military service, would have been maybe put into to boxing was more ubiquitous in schools. It's it's interesting. There is a sense that, that young men can need that at key stages just to channel them to, into a certain direction. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, we talk about military precision and stuff. I mean, I went, I went to private school where I was badly bullied, didn't like it, hated it. Like a couple of the worst years of three of the worst years of my life. Yeah. And um, yeah, bullied all the rest of it. Didn't like it. Uh, very low self-esteem coming out of it. Uh, I'd been, I picked up a couple of injuries in school, like to my Achilles and, put on a bit of weight so I was bullied for being fat and chunky and all the rest of mm. it and then I joined the boxing club and I was made to feel so welcome and instantly you know I was sort of 
part of a brotherhood and you know i've formed friends friendship groups in there and all the rest of it and it's weird isn't it because people mm. would have thought, oh you know from a privileged position in in boarding school to then go to the boxing gym it would be the other way around where yeah. you know I'd, I'd be the outsider but i was very much welcomed into the boxing gym and i was very much the outsider at boarding school where i'd actually had you know an absolutely torrid time mm. and, and it's strange isn't it but you know this is one of the reasons again why i'm such an advocate for the sport because you know people who were people like me who were lost with no direction it gave me something that like i said i still have now 25 odd years onwards yeah, when I speak to boxers and MMA fighters, there's a becoming effect of just knowing how to handle yourself, knowing a bit about combat. Because I think as teenage boys in particular, there's a lot of insecurity. And I was having a candid conversation with my wife about this off the back of the Sarah Everard situation. And because it seemed to me there was a lack of connectivity between people saying that men couldn't have the empathy of, of women. And I said, well, look, when I was, a, and obviously not in the same senses of, of how Sarah Everard was attacked, that's very unusual for a man to be attacked in that way. But the, the concept of fear, it was something I said, I was very, I lived with a lot as a teenage boy. You felt very insecure first going to the pubs. You, I remember being sucker punched by a grown man outside a pub for, for no apparent reason. I was just caught up in a melee as a sort of bystander. And I remember just, I said to her, because she went to similar places, went to the same high school. She doesn't remember that level of, of fear. And I said, I wish in retrospect, I remember my brother uh, became a black belt in karate. And although I felt solidarity and, and community through playing football, I do wish, and growing, growing up in a small town, there wasn't really a boxing gym close to me, that maybe boxing or a mixed martial arts or something would have given me just that little more confidence in handling myself. Because we're full of bluster at that age. But deep down, I think that fear can, can gnaw away at us in our teenage years. Because as a, as a young man, you do feel that, oftentimes you're on the edge of conflict but deep down knowing you can't handle yourself you don't know what to do yeah and i mean you know it's um, you're you're obviously a couple of years younger than me as we touched upon before but you know back then you know mental health wasn't discussed for kids and for no. children and so you know if you if you felt any kind of weakness um you know you, you kind of there was no there was there was no outlook for it you know, mm. you couldn't say to someone, oh, I'm feeling down, or I'm feeling depressed, or or so-and-so was was nasty to me. Not that you'd say that anyway, but there was no outlet for it. So you just got to suck it all up and, and ride the storm. Whereas, you know, my son's now 14, he's 15 next month. Yeah. We talk about mental health regularly. If he goes quiet um, for any point, other than the fact that he's just a, a, a moody teenager now, <laughs> Yeah. And I'll say to him, you know, how is your mental health? Like, are you feeling all right? Are you feeling depressed? You know, do you get down and all the rest of it? Like my dad had, uh, my dad was on, I only found this out relatively recently. My dad had been on antidepressants for a good chunk of his, his later life. So obviously well, I'm aware that there could be something in the genes there that I might pass on to my son as well. So mm. uh, I think it's important to have those conversations, but you know, God, going back to uh, being at, a boarding school where I didn't have a friend in the world and was picked on and all the rest of it. And people picked on me without realizing they were picking on me because they probably, they probably just weren't that horrible or they didn't think they could be that horrible. But stuff stayed with me all these years yeah. on, you know, and you, you, you do, you know, stuff like that. It's, um, it's harsh. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast the other day with Zach George, who's a CrossFitter who, who I really, mm. Uh, who I really like and he was talking about it was exactly the same as me really he would <laughs> he would fake what was it he would fake an uh, he would fake an illness because so he didn't get bullied going in swimming so like when we yeah. had swimming lessons I would fake I would go to the sanatorium and say look I've, I think I've got a flu I can't possibly swim 
Mm. And hopefully, pray I would get signed off so that no one would see me in my swimming trunks, which are a little black pair of budgie <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh man, that 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 feeling. I was young in my year and I was late to puberty. And actually, that that as a young boy, and I mean, I'm sure it happens with girls as well. But the physical differential as a boy, you could be a foot shorter than someone who's had their pubic growth early and, and whatever else, and in all sense of the, of the physique. And you walk around the shower room and you it just absolutely intimidate. I remember playing rugby. I was okay in the first and second year playing centre. I give it to the big lad outside me. But then you're playing against people who are like grown men, and you're there at five feet two, just absolutely cowering yeah. in, in those situations. And you like you say. I think something like boxing giving that self-esteem and confidence at that stage and whether it necessitates necessitates you sparring and taking head hits is another thing but just having that confidence of of yourself and knowing what just to handle yourself a little bit and I know people who did the work experience in year 10 who went to the army just for a week they felt you know elevated by that experience and, and emboldened with confidence yeah, for sure. No, I understand that completely. Um, but yeah, Tris, it, it, you mentioned on social media, I want to talk about, you said about the anxiety of this book coming out. Did you see it? That you, was the, Is that anxiousness, a fear of the, that you're going to be seen as a, betray, a betrayal of the sport? How did you, how did you look at that? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, hey, it's like, um, there's two aspects of that. One, yes, I agree with that. You know, I do I worry about people saying, oh, he's going to be the anti-boxing guy when I'm not. Uh, so yeah there is that but also like as a as a creative artist so let, let's say then obviously it's it's me taking my canvas it's taking it's me taking the dust covers off a canvas to show the world what i've been working on for four years yeah yeah so obviously you know how is it going to be received like I, am i and you know the fact that i have social media accounts means i'm open to criticism because when i started in journalism i was speaking to my my fiance about this the other day like you know there was no feedback for this stuff you know this wasn't i didn't go into journalism to be any kind of celebrity or person i'm not saying that i am but, have you know, to have attention yeah yeah that wasn't me you know you, you you know a journalist was someone whose byline you would see in the paper and that was it yeah there yeah. was no dialogue with them there, you might have been able to write a letter into the editor but there was no oh, i'm gonna write to this person all the rest of it you know and and so so what we have now is obviously if someone disagrees what you what you say they'll be straight onto instagram twitter and they'll be giving you their opinion whereas obviously when i started journalism 20 21 years ago this wasn't it wasn't a thing it was you know do your do your best do your research write the best that you can submit your story and you know move on to the next project and now obviously you know we all live with the fear of repercussions in you know, I don't read comments anymore, but, you know, we live with the fear of repercussions of comment sections and social media. A lot easier, isn't it? What you're saying there, people could phone phone up after a television program they didn't like. They could write a letter, as you say, but that requires a lot more effort. And I suppose unrest on the person who's, who's been upset by it, whereas actually now it's very easy to to fire a direct message or write a comment. It's, it's in a sense, it's too easy. Yeah, I mean, hey, I, I had someone leave, uh, leave. you know, I did Ricky Hatton's War and Peace book with him. And um, we we wrote that, but really liked it. One of the first reviews I, that was left for it on Amazon saying, I'm not going to read this book. Uh, I hate Ricky Hatton. One star. Wow. So, like, And that, Ricky, that invalidates like, that system, didn't doesn't even, it? Didn't yeah. even read the book. Yeah. And, you know, didn't even give it a shot. And, you know, and, and what can you do? You know, so if that so so if people aren't even going to read the book and they're just going to read the headline or the subtitle and then give you their opinion, I've already had that based off a couple of social media shares that I've put the book cover and stuff. 
Yeah. Then, you know, you just, you, you dread going back to social media because you never know what you're going to get. Yes. it's And it, it, those metrics that somehow sort of in the internet age sort of, I guess, indicate or influence what attention you, you receive, whether it's you have a, a fine podcast, Boxing Life Stories, whether people rate that, how it affects the algorithms and things and, and book reviews and how people can just, you know, skew that in terms of an emotional reaction to a particular person or a subject of your podcast. It's, it's very curious that, 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 that we live and, and die by that sort of fragility of people's emotions and, and prejudices and, and preferences. So it's a, it's a bizarre, bizarre world in that sense. Four years I still can't get my head around the, the negativity and why people will actually leave a bad review or, or without reading like it. That. <laughs> yeah. Or, no, not even that. Like if I go to a pub, for instance, and it's not great, I probably just wouldn't go there again. Yeah. But you know, people get stuck in on TripAdvisor and will write reams and reams of, of virtual paper, really sticking the knife in it. And it's, it's the same with, with what we do, whether it's YouTube comments, or whatever. I just think if you don't like it, just change the channel and do something <laughs> else. But you don't have to, you don't have to be really unpleasant to people or about them. No, being emotionally affected for those people, I feel sympathy for them in a sense, because being in that state where you're constantly enraged by things that are relatively innocuous to your life must be quite hard to be productive and successful, isn't it? But we don't really talk about that. We are enslaved and enraptured by opinion at the moment, it seems, in outrage culture. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel sympathy for them at all. I just wish they had something better to do. Yeah, well, but you never know where they come from, do you? Like like the boxers, it's sometimes you never know what, what breeds no, that, that no, mentality. But, but, but for me, there's still no excuse for that. You know, I just think it's... You know why bring someone else down just because you're having a bad day yes yeah absolutely and i think because i have a modest following on social media i've never had the hate that a lot of people have had and i think it's a very different picture particularly black friends of mine have been illuminating over the past year and women in fact uh, on on that note but just wanted to that's four years tris that's quite an effort because don mccray was saying that he typically has taken four years to write books although stephen gerrard gave him 15 weeks or 16 weeks to write his autobiography in 2015 which he said was a, a huge challenge how is it been for you to stay structured to stay productive over that course of time has it been a certain amount of hours per week how's it work is it ebbed and flowed yeah definitely ebbed and flowed i mean there were sort of hot spot times where you know i i did big trips to america where i would i'm just trying to think of the first the first trip that i made to america for this book i went to new york where i interviewed dr nitin sethi and then i went upstate new york to to the international boxing hall of fame where i spent time with mickey ward and other fighters uh, and then I flew across to Las Vegas, where I went and saw Dr. Charles Burnick, who's doing the fight study, and I think a couple of other, um, couple of other boxers at the time. And then there was another trip to America where um, I worked up and down the East Coast. I went to Philadelphia and Boston and New York and got bits and bobs yeah. together. And then I tied in a trip to see Leon Spinks with some other work that I was doing for BT Sport at the time in, in Vegas. So. It's all been, and then I, I went to Kiev for the WBC convention to speak to Maurizio Suleiman and grabbed a couple more fighters there. So, uh, yeah, there, there's been no real, you know, the structure ended up sort of taking care of itself, but um, it, it was a, it was a gradual chipping away because obviously I'm spinning in a lot of plates. So for three years of that, obviously I've had a podcast every week, yeah, um, and and I'm I'm obviously still doing all my writing for all the other places that I work for. So um, time management. Key. Yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of plates spinning, but uh, it's always been going on in the background. And, you know, certainly while you're working on a project like that, as soon as you hear CTE or brain or, you know, any of these key words, uh, where, even if it's on in the background, like your ears will prick up 
Uh, and obviously most recently as I came into deadline it was all about Stephen Thompson and the, and the Rugby World Cup winning, yeah. winning team uh, from when was it 2003 yeah. um, down in Australia and so obviously all that stuff becomes more relevant and obviously you know you mentioned the Charlton's and you know you read about this and look for more research and, and more stuff to, to, to give you an understanding of, of, of what, uh, what you're doing really. Did you write, did you block book time that you're working on the articles you're writing on currently for, for magazines and, and online and, and the podcast work? Did you block book that and then, then time for the book or did it sort of naturally unfold each day? How did you organise that? I'm just yeah, curious. It was, it was a natural unfolding. I mean, that's one of the good things about um, A, being freelance and B, being able to spin different plates in the sense that, you know, if I, as long as, as long as I'm working, it doesn't really matter what I'm working on. Yeah. So, cause I'll always, I'll always be putting a shift in some way, shape or form. So, um, when it comes to writing, I do like to go with my, with, with what I feel like doing on that particular day. So there would be days where I get up and I think, right, I really want to do, uh, this chapter, for example, and I'll focus on that. Or I might wake up and think, oh, I need to do an interview. I haven't spoken to anyone for a little while, so let's do an interview, whether it was book or, or boxing related. Um, so I, I'm happy to go with my gut a lot of the time, and, and generally by doing that, that makes me very productive. If I if I if I work in something that I really fancy doing that particular day, then I'll be very productive. Yeah, we have been. It's fantastic. I love the podcast, and I love your writing when I when I read the pieces, and I, I love this book, and I think. We owe you a debt of gratitude for those that have covered the sport, loved the sport, and have not been practitioners. And as I say, you have been to a certain extent, but it is you've you've kind of illuminated and elucidated the key issues that I think have that we all are conflicted about. I think it's great to to have it out there. It's funny because I've done a little bit of writing, pivoting back on Sky Sports during the past year, particularly the early stages of the pandemic. And I love the mindset of sitting down and writing and turning devices off, but the anxiety, I'm terrible at copy editing. I've got focus problems. And I think that must be something, I suppose, the copy of the book is it worried about typos and things like that. Yeah, although the the um, production values for Hamilcar, who've pub published Damage, are absolutely outstanding. So uh, I've gone back and forth with at least two, if not three editors, and it's gone through a really a really tight process. So I'm really happy with, with the final Excellent. draft of, of, of Damage. Yeah, don't worry, I haven't found anything. I wasn't going like, to. I wasn't going to tell you on the PDF. I've got. I think those guys have stellar production values. Yeah. So I'm really happy with the job they've done. No, my wife's a graphic designer, and she's much better actually at copy editing than me. It's strange. She was saying, "Oh, well, shouldn't this be this or that?" And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's uh, that's a good, a good point." But how do you feel overall? Do you feel a, a cathartic feeling, Tris, that you've got this out there now that you can continue? As we talked about previously, I think last year that you can continue now with with your conscience clearer um yeah yeah i do i you know I, uh, it's if i'd ignored it Ed, i would have been part of the problem yeah so you know and it's an institutionalized problem so i don't want to be part of the problem i would rather be and i don't want to sound stereotypical i'd rather be part of the solution yeah and, and also i'd rather contribute and by turning a blind eye and just watching these fighters because hey i mean it's easy for me to say these guys are friends of mine so aaron Pryor. Matthew Saad Mohammed, who, who are no longer with us, Mickey Ward, these are legends who are friends of mine and I've seen them suffer. Yeah. And I don't want people co to continue to suffer. And I don't want them to be ignored because they're suffering either. I want this to be addressed. Uh, I want us to all start getting comfortable talking about an uncomfortable subject. And this is me putting it out there and saying, you know, as Thomas Hauser said in his review of the book, you know, let's see who's paying attention. And this is where 
you know, all those people who claim to care about fighters, let's see who really cares. Yeah. Let's see who's learning about tau protein, CTE, links with Alzheimer's, dementia, ALS. Um, let's see who really does care for their fighters. And let's see which, which, which organizations uh, are really looking out for their boxers. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, now, the, now I've put the information out there in the public domain, it's over to these people to actually prove that they do care. Yeah, lots of levels in, in sport and boxing is is a question of, yes, we all have self-interest. We live in broadly capitalist societies where we need to make money. But can you can you caveat that with principles and, and, and precautions? And I think you're absolutely right with that. You know, the, the exhibition matches now of, of boxers in the 1950s and things like that. Should we really sanction those events, given what given what we know? It's, it's things like that that I think this book really brings into question, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's so much going on in terms of the boxing landscape now that just makes you want to shake your head. We've had this whole week of the Fury Joshua, Wilder, Usyk, Quadrangle. Mm. Um, we've got uh, all the stuff with the, I can't even bring myself to say the names of those brothers. YouTubers. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, all the stuff. And then we've got all the, all the oldies coming out. And some of these guys, like I'm not, I'm not averse to them making a living. And Glenn McCrory knows my, thoughts on his comeback attempt against Roy Jones and all the rest of it. But the thing is these guys and, and Glenn will say, or his career was cut short and all the rest of it. And I get that. But when you look at people like Roy, for instance, you know, who's been boxing for so long, mm. you know, from, you know, what, from, from when he was in this Seoul Olympics of 88. So several years before that, and yeah. now we're in 2021 and he's still going, he's getting close to 40 years of trauma. Mm. You know, just you know do these guys really need a license to do it once or twice more do they really like is it is yeah. it really going to help them in any way shape or form and especially when they're in a sort of emotional sense when they're so talented and so above the the sort of human level norm, normal level like roy jones jr to see them you know and enzo macronelli makes sort of a joke of that doesn't he about being a roy jones a prime roy jones jr when clearly he wasn't enzo's quite honest about that but it's it's quite sad as well in, in that sense but also the subplot is is, is more sad about the, the physical toll it takes upon them where do you see it going society tris because it, it tends to get more sanitized less violent as we go on and i know in the united states they banned heading the ball for soccer do you see society moving that way do you see people maybe choosing other sports and um, well, I think the, so. The head in the soccer ball is like an age limit thing, isn't it? I think they're mm. looking to, to maybe get it outlawed for under ten, fourteen. Well, yeah. I think they're looking to make it globally under fourteen as well. Oh, okay. And you think you know if if they if they're not wanting kids to head footballs under the age of fourteen, there's a fair chance they're probably not going to want them boxing at age eleven. Yeah. Um, so I think that will be that will be probably and possibly one of the future steps. But hey, and it's just so hard, isn't it? With you know, boxing's lack of structure, organisational structure, even if someone implements, if, even if the British Boxing Board of Control came in heavy-handed in this country and said, right, we're going to do this, we're not going to do that, and all the rest of it, they'll still do it in Germany, or they'll still yeah. do it in Luxembourg. And the same thing in the States, and this is one thing obviously I touched upon in the book, you know, in some states you need an MRI to scan, in some states you need a CAT scan, in some states you need both, and in some states you need neither. And yeah. that's only in one country. So, like, how do you enforce all of this? Stuff? Yeah, it, it's fascinating because me and Don touched upon the comparison as, as I've been covering a little bit of MMA for Sky during the pandemic and, and, and interviewing Bellator fighters and UFC fighters. And, and we talked about his visceral rejection of the sport of mixed martial arts when he saw it 
from the outside, people seemingly engaged in a savage business of fighting on the ground and things like that. That was was a sort of anathema to him as a, a boxing man. But then he said he begrudgingly conceded that some of the, the issues of, of control and regulation within a sort of um, homeostatic environment within the UFC or within Bellator or within the, the Professional Fighters League, whatever organization it is, they seem to set the rules, there's standards, there's maybe more of a consistency of pay, not as much high pay for the, the, the top of the, the tree. That's for, that's a sort of disagreement that people in the UFC look at boxers and are jealous and envious of that. But because oh, you looked into this as well within the, the gloves, didn't you, between boxing gloves and, and how perhaps they've caused issues as well, the equipment. Well, I mean, that's another thing altogether, you know, you standardize in the kit because everyone knows that Reyes gloves are punches gloves. Mm. So, you know, so, so then, but you've got all the different brands, but then you can't possibly implement one, one brand because then you'll be putting all the other, co yeah. other companies in that business. So yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's a, it's a really tough position you, to be in. Bare knuckle boxing might have been better, you, you thought. Is that right? Uh, well, hey, I mean, I'm not saying, I wouldn't say that, um, unequivocally but obviously by speaking to some of the guys who and, and particularly bob me who covered some of the not covered <laughs> not even <laughs> 19th century <laughs> yeah but bob, bob wrote bare fists which is about bare knuckle boxing and about that era and he's he's really done his homework on that era what was interesting about those guys really uh was that you know they said Bob was under the impression that there were a lot of those fights were actually stopped because they were too boring because the guys <laughs> weren't weren't prepared to damage their hands on on other people's faces. Yeah. So they said that they possibly Im implemented uh, using gloves to acute so that you could get more damage. And then obviously I think it's Scott Burt from the from the Bare Knuckle Boxing Hall of Fame in New York told me uh, in the book he said he said to me. You know, go and go and smash that wall over there with your brick with your fist. It was a brick wall. And I said, <laughs> I said, no, you're all right. And he said, well, now go and put on a a, a big glove with yeah. a pad and go and smash it as many times as you can. And oh, said, I see. You know, yeah, yeah. Slightly, slightly more open to doing it now. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. The psychology. I hadn't thought about that of having having gloves on. And they got the four ounce gloves in the UFC. And I think they used to be four ounce in the days of Jack Johnson in boxing, didn't they? They were a lot smaller in in those days, actually. Yeah, they which... up eight, yeah. Mm. No, it's, it, it's such a sort of um, a complex but captivating issue. Bare knuckle box, bare knuckle fighting has come back in the United States as well, which is Paulie Malignaggi had about, didn't he? So it's just, it's uh, it's a human beings are conflicted and contradicted, and, and covering boxing has certainly done that for us, Tris. But tell us finally where where we can find the book because this will come out. I'm going to publish it the podcast on the day the book comes out, which is the 27th of May. Yeah, so May 25 in the US, May 27 in the UK. Uh, you can order it uh, via Amazon or Waterstones. Uh, in terms of physically shops, I'm not sure where it's going to be stocked, but um, Amazon and Waterstones are the way forward. And have your friends in boxing, have they been receptive? The fighters, they, judging by Harold Graham, the people you speak to, they want this message to be to be widely out there for the young fighters. I think so. I think, you know, there, there might be some that where there's, and, and I haven't experienced this yet, but there's some people where they're like, oh, you know, I, I, in fact, I have experienced this. I had this, I had a conversation with Don Broadhurst the other day where he said, we all know the risks. And I said, well, that's great. You know, if you do know about CTE and tau protein and the links with Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's and ALS, then fair play. And he's like, well, no, I mean, I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> so, so it's, <laughs> It, it was it so but th this is so there's the misconception obviously that i, I do want to address in in that um in that part but um yeah i don't in terms of sorry and i just lost my train of thought 
No, no, but you're right. I think that um, that is the underlining thing for me, the connection between those serious medical sort of uh, diseases that people are aware of that are household names like Parkinson's is key to the book because often punch drunk syndrome, syndrome is such a sort of imprecise and colloquialism that actually this is something that is unequivocal and unavoidable. Yeah, sure. And then obviously it became dementia pugilistica, but that was that was that phrase was later binned when they found out that dementia wasn't always present in it as well. So, you know, it's had it's had the different guises over the years. But yeah, it's it's been a it's been a proper labor of love. And it's I'm, I'm excited to see the feedback while obviously being slightly apprehensive and anxious. <laughs> well, hopefully anyone listens to this podcast will be positive, Tris. And you're on Instagram and Twitter. Is, is, is Insta your main jam these days? um so insta is like a blend of boxing and my own training stuff and twitter is basically me leaving links to my books and podcasts and leaving before it gets out of hand <laughs> and, and the crossfit's going well is it you're looking good nick again uh, it's, as it's ever gonna, it's it's going okay mate i mean hey i'm 42 years old so i'm just trying to just trying to cling on to a bit of youth i think well um, yeah well i turn 40 next month any any tips any advice yeah, try not to. Just <laughs> try and try and try and try and stay in your thirties for as long as you possibly can. Well, I, I I snuck in to get a Pfizer jab, so that was uh, that was quite sort of uh, buoying in a sense that I, I made the cut for that. So I was uh, I was deemed in my thirties for that. Although, and I'm I had it this morning, and I'm still I'm still kind of uh, compass mentor, so that's a positive sign. But it's it's interesting that period of reflection, and I had did a late shift again last night, and looking after yourself and that risk reward is, is key because we know that in journalism don't we as well we've had to work strip weird and wonderful hours that in retrospect probably aren't good for our health but I think people at the bottom line is is information will help you as, as we you and I have learned about sleep and the importance of it through Matthew Walker over the past few years I think boxers and fighters known the risks that, that, that are in there like people riding motorbikes knowing the risk people who parachute people who uh, skydive whatever they do I think it's it's all about free choice with information yeah, and I mean, hey, you know, there are fighters who wound up damaged and their voices are in the book, whether it was Thomas Hauser who wrote Muhammad Ali's biography within uh, his life and times, or whether it was Aaron Pryor's widow, uh, Frankie, who said in the book, you know, if, if Aaron could do it again and if, if Ali could do it again, uh, knowing what they knew at the end, they still would do it all over again. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a good final point. The seismic impact that Muhammad Ali had in particular on global society, equality, loads of issues I think and he would say that he wouldn't have achieved that without his notoriety through boxing and his sort of I guess unparalleled fame at the time as well and continuing to this day in uh, in his sort of uh, his legacy but Tris thank you very much really appreciate your time and I, I love the book and I, again I, I'm grateful that you wrote it for the, the sport of boxing the people that I love in it and the most importantly those fighters who who put their courage on the line or getting their or their lives on the line for for our entertainment and our inspiration yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it does. Um, hey, I've always said sort of from a rel relatively mod modestly perspective, if it helps just one fighter, uh, whether it's understanding what's going on, what might go on, or if it, if it helps a fighter near the end of his career make up the decision to, to walk away, and that does allow him to live a long and happy life rather than gamble it on another two or three fights, then, then the book would have done its job. Absolutely. Thank you, Tris. Thank you, Ed. It's powerful, that book from Tris. Damage, the untold story of brain trauma in boxing. Really appreciate his time. It's a 
I think an emotional time for him as well, putting this out there as a former boxer himself, a man who's made his living from covering it, covering these wonderful fighters, telling their stories to kind of get it out there, the consequences, the often severe consequences on the mental health, the brain health, the cognitive function, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a big topic across sports, but I think certainly in boxing, undeniable, very hard to be a practitioner of boxing and not get hit in the head. And it's something that I say with the majesty of the sport, the inspiration of the courage, the mastery that I appreciate him doing it. So others haven't had to, to just get those feelings out there and, and get the clarity out there, the data. And so hopefully boxers can take that choice. And as he says, boxing saves more souls than it takes. So it's a complex picture, but it's important to lay bare those realities, I think. And check out that book, Damage the Untold Story of Boxing Trauma from Tris Dixon. Let me know if you enjoyed that podcast, Ed Draper 81 on Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram. There's a Facebook page as well. You can post on there for sure, I believe anyway. Um, not too much of a, a Facebook man these days, but thank you for listening and appreciate it. Rate it on whatever platform you're listening on. That'd be fine. Fantastic. Any feedback as well on there, any reviews, always appreciated. And any sort of human face-to-face, -face, you can do that now, can't you? At least in the UK, uh, kind of recommendations to friends and family would be great too. Uh, but thank you to you. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. If you are local, local to Cheltenham in particular, but you can do it online as well, order through their website. But I mentioned the podcast as well. Jason would appreciate that as he uh, plows on with his AFC Cheltenham amateur football team as well. Well, the weather looks slightly up here. It's getting warmer in the UK. Finally, here in the west of England in Cheltenham, my home. As we head towards the end of May, it's about time, isn't it? It's the wettest May I can remember. It's rained pretty much every day up until the last few days at least. Um, but yeah, I hope you're good. I hope things are opening up where you are. I hope anxieties are over health and everything are relieving. And if you are looking to optimise and, and I guess polish off any healthy lifestyle that you're fostering and looking to supplement, then uh, food-based supplements from Cytoplan is something my father and my family has been taking for 20 plus years. My father, Dr. Mark Draper, has worked as a consultant for micronutritionist expert, my, my old man. And uh, if you'd like to go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, I'm a big fan of the Immune Complete 2 range, which has that crucial vitamin D3 in there, vitamin C, um, and all the other the parts, selenium and zinc, which my father's a, a big fan of in particular. And they're, they're all in that one-stop shop, but there's obviously all individual specific supplements available at cytoplan.co.uk. And the discount code is DRAPER10R, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Again, I hope you found that thought-provoking. And I think, again, it in, in a way heightens uh, the reverence you have for these men and women who get into the ring or the cage in MMA and put themselves on the line for ultimately our entertainment and hopefully our inspiration as well. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. Have a great weekend and goodbye for now.